0: When Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man.
1: As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus.
2: Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Much of the scripture that we've read today and sang today has been heavy you might be asking yourself, it's Palm Sunday, why are we starting on Good Friday? But if you remember as we've been going through John's Gospel, we actually came to Palm Sunday way back in John chapter 12. Today if we were going to start with Palm Sunday and try to work our way all the way to Good Friday, we would have been in eight chapters together, so you should be thankful. We've jumped ahead a bit. You've been reading along, however, you know that a storm has been brewing. We are looking forward to next Sunday, where on Easter we get to celebrate. We'll sing even more about life instead of death. We'll sing even more about light instead of darkness. But in order to get to the light and the life of the resurrection, we have to travel. The long, dark, lonely road through the cross. And Good Friday, as John describes it here in this chapter, with much detail, in many ways was anything but good. What we see on display in John 19 is a culture of death. And throughout this chapter, it seems like the death culture is winning. And we know something about that, don't we? We know something about living... In a culture of death, we talk about it a lot in our evangelical circles, but many cases we talk mostly about the unborn and the culture of death that we have with abortion. But we also have a culture of death with mass violence. We have a culture of death where violence is celebrated, where, where the movie industry will put millions of dollars just to make sure death and violence looks as realistic as possible. Death is all around us, and in the first century, crucifixion was the height of a culture of death. A storm has been brewing since Palm Sunday, and we've been reading through these chapters together. Hopefully, you've been reading along on your own since we've been going through John fairly quickly. You'll remember that after Palm Sunday, we moved into John 13, where Jesus said, I am the way The truth and the life the path is headed towards the cross then in John 15 Jesus said I am the true vine you are the branches if you abide in me I will abide in you in John 16 Jesus continued teaching following the last supper but the narrative moves into a place we call the garden in the garden in john 17 jesus prays and only john records one of the most amazing prayers in all of the bible that happened in the garden and then in john 18 it's in the garden that jesus is betrayed jesus is arrested it seems like the culture of death again is winning but we also call this week which begins with palm sunday holy week don't we Because though there is much darkness, we know this week will end with the light. We know that the death culture in which Jesus was living, in which all of these events happened, will not win. Because when we get to Easter Sunday, we celebrate victory. And Christ's victory is not only over his own death, but Christ's victory in which we share is over our sin and our death. We share in his victory. But oh, John 19 is heavy. It's dark. It's, it's painful to read. But within it, John makes sure to do what he's promised us from the beginning of this gospel he would do. He lifts up Christ so that we might see him in all of his glory. John began the gospel by saying, he is the word he's the word who was from the beginning he's the word who is god he is the word who became flesh and john says throughout the gospel i've written all of these things so that you might believe and in this chapter the call to believe in jesus is a clarion call it's meant to be heard clearly and so this morning in a little different way than i usually do There are going to be no points up on the screen. The only thing you'll see are are the verses that we read. And I want you, as hard as it might be, to, to do your best to focus, to take a listening posture, that we would let the words that John has written, the detail with which he has given us this account of Good Friday, be the words that speak most clearly to us today. Today we're going to see Christ our Savior, but we're also going to see Christ our example. And I'm going to use those two words a lot as we go, because I think here John and later writers of the New Testament want us to see in the crucifixion that, yes, Christ is our Savior. There is no doubt, but he's also our example. And it comes out starting in the beginning of this chapter. There's a phrase that's used continuously king of the jews imagine what kind of a claim that would be in the first century in israel here in jerusalem to say that israel which had no real jewish king they had herod but he was no real jewish king now has a king jesus they said claimed to be the son of god if this were true then all their hopes were fulfilled All the hopes that they had believed in their lifetimes, but also that had been passed to them by their ancestors, that had been written in the scriptures, that had been proclaimed by the prophets. If, in fact, Jesus was the Son of God and the rightful King of the Jews, if this was true, all their hopes were fulfilled. They should have been filled with joy. They should have been thankful. They should have been praising God, their Father in heaven. That his son had been revealed but if this were false jesus claimed to be the son of god he was committing blasphemy and blasphemy as they say according to their law is is a sin that's worthy of being punished by death so imagine the way this phrase king of the jews is being used by everyone involved if jesus himself says this then he says it rightfully i am your king I'm the king above all of the other kings that you requested from God back in the days of the Hebrew scriptures. The kings, some who were good, some who were bad, but every single one of them fell short. I am the rightful king. I am the word. I am God in the flesh in your midst. If Jesus says king of the Jews, it's right and it's true. But what about some of the others? The soldiers. When the soldiers call Jesus King of the Jews, they're doing it in a mocking way. They're like adolescent boys, calling names, throwing things, putting the crown of thorns on his head, mocking him, laughing, King of the Jews, King of the Jews. When the religious leaders use the phrase King of the Jews, they do so in an accusatory way. Think back to John 18, but also think to Matthew, Mark, and Luke when we put them all together together Jesus has been being bounced around from place to place for several hours began after his betrayal and arrest in the garden he was first bound and brought to Annas the father-in-law of the high priest when Annas could not fulfill what needed to be done he passed him off to the Sanhedrin and specifically Caiaphas the high priest When the Sanhedrin couldn't do what they thought needed to be done, they handed him over to Pontius Pilate, who we see here, the Roman governor appointed by Emperor Tiberius, put in charge of these legal matters, and he would have to give his stamp of approval for someone to be put to death. Pilate questions Jesus the first time. It's in that questioning. We actually read this, you might remember, in November, right before our own election. And we focused on the words Jesus said to Pilate in that first questioning, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate has no idea what to do with Jesus. So he too passes him off. Next, Jesus goes to Herod, who's supposedly the Jewish king. And then Herod and the Jewish leaders send Jesus back to Pilate. And it's here that we see Jesus is questioned again, He's flogged. The crown of thorns is placed on his head. He's beaten. He's mocked. And Pilate is seemingly doing everything he can to appease the angry mob because he doesn't ultimately want to see Jesus put to death. As I think about Jesus being bounced around, I heard an interview recently with a retired U.S. senator. He's been retired for a long time, but he was remarking about the fact he said back in the 80s and the early 90s when I served there was a strange group of us who thought that our first responsibility was to the United States and not to the Republican Party not to the Democratic Party not to our little circle of friends but to the people and he said I've, I feel like looking at our current situation we're a long way from that many of us probably feel the same way sometimes we want to ask who is there in leadership who actually wants to do the job they've been appointed to do. I read through this account. Jesus has bounced around from person to person. Think about all of the people in authority, the men of power who had the opportunity at some point to do their job, to be faithful to their calling, and to stand up and say, this is not right. From every member of the Sanhedrin, as far as we know, from the high priest himself, to Herod, to Pilate, when will someone in this story stand up and put their own personal desires aside, their own safety, their own power, and say, because they know in their heart, what we're doing to this man is not okay. Yet as you read through this account, not one leader on that night stood up and said this is wrong. Not one was willing to demonstrate faithfulness to God above their party or their personal interests. And what ultimately ends up happening is Pilate offers to make a swap. Why don't we swap prisoners? Do you really want to do this? And and notice what I believe Pilate is doing. He's such a curious person in this story. In order to try one last time to save Jesus' life, who does he offer them but a man named Barabbas who is a known thief and murderer? Surely these people will not choose to put a known dangerous person right back out into the community instead of Jesus, who's a rabbi, who's a teacher. But when Pilate makes the offer, according to your custom, I can release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover, who do you want? Barabbas or Jesus? And they say, give us Barabbas. And Jesus' life is swapped for that of a murderer. Yet Pilate maintains, as for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Again, Jesus is our Savior and Jesus is our example. What Pilate said, I find No basis for charge against him. I really find nothing this man has done wrong. The Apostle Paul later will confirm. And he'll say this in 2 Corinthians 5, not just in terms of the legal situation that happened here, according to John, but in terms of our salvation. Why it was that God allowed the only truly innocent man who has ever lived to endure these circumstances. Paul wrote this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Pilate was absolutely right. There was no fault in this man and yet God the Father through his providence but more importantly through his love he made him who had no sin to become sin for us. Jesus' life being taken from him was the ultimate example of depravity and injustice that's ever happened in the history of the world. As Acts says, his life being taken from him was completely unjust, yet he did not resist it. He is our Savior. He's also our example. And throughout this account and every other account of the crucifixion, Christ continually modeled in speech and in actions what unwavering commitment to God's kingdom looks like. And Pilate, again, he doesn't know what to do, but you get the sense that he, as Jesus is meeting all of his interrogation with silence, Pilate wants to say, dude, help yourself out, say something. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate asked? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you. Verse 11. I love this. Jesus said, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, Pilate's not really in charge of these proceedings. Neither is the Sanhedrin or Herod or Caiaphas. Even Caesar himself is not in control. God, the Father, who is sovereign over all, is completely in control and in charge. And Jesus says, if it were not for his will, you would have no power over me. And as our example, Jesus demonstrates incredible peace in this moment. How does he have that peace? Well, yes, he's Jesus, but also because he trusts the Father absolutely. He knows and believes that God's promises are true. He also knows that he is standing in truth. And because he is standing in truth, God will not cease to be in control of all of these events and to honor his word to him. And for us, sometimes I think when we wrestle and we struggle and we are tempted to be like so many of these others who are silent in the face of this injustice. We have to ask ourselves the question, is God in charge or not? Do we really believe that God is in control or is he not? Because if he is, we too can have that peace. Because we too can have that absolute trust and believe that if we are standing in truth, just as Jesus modeled for us, God will not leave us alone. Isaiah wrote, as we heard earlier, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Christ is our example even in the midst of his suffering. Peter remarked about this later. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate, and when he suffered, he made no threats in return. Yet he entrusted himself completely to God the Father as the judge. Even for his enemies, Jesus went to the cross. And even in the face of their betrayal, their mocking, their conniving, their scheming, he still demonstrated the faithful love of God before them. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. They responded, we have no king but Caesar. Can you even imagine... The level of compromise it must have taken for them, the religious leaders, to make this kind of idolatrous statement with all that they resented about Rome, with all of the oppression that Caesar had brought upon them, that they would say, We have no king but Caesar. Look at the lengths that people will go to in a death culture to rid themselves of Jesus. Take him away. Take him away crucify him but John has more to say and we're going to continue reading as David and Teresa read starting in verse 17
1: so the soldiers took charge of Jesus carrying his own cross he went out to the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha there they crucified him and with him two others one on each side and Jesus in the middle
0: And cast lots for my garment so this is what the soldiers did near the cross of Jesus stood his mother his mother's sister Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to her woman here is your son and to the disciple Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home.
2: Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, Golgotha. We can all picture the wealthy in the ancient world traveling through the marketplace with their entourage, carrying all their belongings, everything that they have, living in every possible way the life of luxury here is the king of all kings and he is carrying his own cross he is beyond exhausted at this point physically yes but also emotionally he's been up all night long praying after that time ended he is betrayed by someone dearly close to him then he is taken from place to place and he's interrogated He's beaten. He's mocked. He's been up all night. He is beyond exhausted in every possible way. But then when we come to verse 18, in just a few simple words, John says what happens next. There, they crucified him. That's all the detail that John gives. There, they crucified him. Perhaps not much description was needed because the first century audience was all too familiar with this awful Terrible method of torturing, punishing, and executing a criminal. All John needed to say was they crucified him because people knew, they understood. But here's another moment where Jesus identifies with those who suffer because of his own suffering. That we know in our hearts and many have experienced in our lives that Jesus himself is uniquely present with those who suffer rather than those who are secure. We know it, we've felt it. Some of us have been betrayed, not to the level of Jesus, but we've been betrayed and the more we connect with God and learn about Jesus Christ, we realize that when we are betrayed, we suffer like Jesus. When we face pain, when we feel disconnected, when we feel all alone, Jesus endured this much more than we can imagine, and even still he identifies with us in our suffering. That's why we say Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is our God with us, uniquely present when we suffer. Pilate had a notice prepared, and here comes that phrase again, King of the Jews a sign attached to the cross that read jesus of nazareth king of the jews and it was written in aramaic and latin and greek so that as many people around would be able to read and understand verse 21 the chief priests of the jews protested to pilate do not write the king of the jews but that this man claimed to be the king of the jews but pilate says what i've written i've written he's such a curious case as we've said it's It's almost as if Pilate is about to believe himself. What if this man actually is the son of a God? I don't want to be on the wrong side of that God, do I? What if he actually has a legitimate right to some throne? I don't want to start a war with that kingdom by acting hastily. What I have written, I have written. Pilate is unsure. Maybe he's even afraid. But what's really happening underneath all of this, John wants us to understand. He says it here in verse 24, but he's going to say it four times before this chapter ends. All of this took place so that Scripture might be fulfilled. Just as Jesus said, You have no power over me, except that it was given to you by my Father. And John says, None of these things would happen, even to the level of them not tearing his clothes as they cast lots for them, so that Scripture would be fulfilled to the letter, just as God had proclaimed. We come to the end of this section, and I ask the question Who's still there? Who's still standing with Jesus? Is it Peter? Is it James? Is it Matthew? No. All of the male disciples, except for John, have fled. John says the only people still standing publicly with Jesus at this point are three women, one was his mother, and John himself. Where is everyone else? Where are those righteous people, even the disciples who are willing to stand up and say, this is not right? There's only a few left. But even in that moment... As Jesus models several times on the cross He's not thinking of himself Jesus looks down and among those four people he sees his mother And one of the twelve who was closest to him And he says here is your mother Here is your son from now on you two are responsible for each other From this day forward you belong to each other You are family And john took her into his home Who's still there? Who's still standing with Jesus? And is that true of us? Will we be still standing no matter what comes? One last section. One last reading. Starting in verse 28.
0: Knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit.
1: Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man, who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, Bringing a sudden flow of blood and water.
0: The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced.
2: John just said it again at the beginning of this last section. So that scripture would be fulfilled. Another detail, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And all kinds of scriptures being fulfilled when you see the hyssop plant mentioned. And all that's happening that the Hebrew scripture had prepared people for. That you would think the religious leaders, the most educated standing around, would start to put together and say, this is not a coincidence. When he received the drink, verse 30, Jesus said, it is finished. And the word here in Greek, it's one word that we translate as three. It's a great word. It's a rare and unique word. And it has deep meaning. The word is tetelestai. And I won't go into much of a Greek lesson for you except to say you will not find more of a complete word to be used in this situation. Tetelestai is is in the perfect tense. And so it doesn't just mean it is finished. In this one word is encapsulated the past, the present and the future. To means it finished, it is finished and it will always be finished. It is complete. When Jesus said to Telestai, he said, I have completed all that which was spoken about in the past. I have fulfilled God's will for me in this moment. And I have set the course of events from now until forevermore that the debt that human beings owe to God has been paid. In fact, this word to Telestai, though it's very rare in scripture, it was very common in the ancient world. You would see it often written on a receipt, When someone would go to a merchant, someone would go to a store owner, and they would pay their bill, or someone would go to a lender, and they would pay their debt, and that lender or that store owner would take that note, and they would write to telestai. In other words, it's paid in full. It's finished. It's done. You do not owe one more cent. Jesus says, it finished, It is finished, and it is finished forever. Not one more cent is owed on the debt humanity owes to God because of their sin. This is a powerful word. The next time any of you see Roy Ferguson, you tell him we talked about Tetelestai. Because he's been telling me for months, we better talk about that this Easter. You tell him we almost made it. With that, the end of verse 30, he bowed his head, and this little phrase is important, he gave up his spirit. Yes, his life was taken from him in an act of injustice, but it could not have been taken had he not given it willingly. He gave up his spirit. At any moment, Jesus had said, I could call down legions of angels. My followers will fight for me. And he wasn't talking about those 11 guys left. He's talking about angelic armies that could put an end to all of this. But he willingly bowed his head, gave up his spirit. And I can't help but notice and mention, here come the Jewish leaders again, and now all of a sudden, they're concerned about right and wrong. Verse 31, now they want to talk about the law. Now they're worried about upsetting God. They don't want dead bodies left out over the Sabbath. this is a picture of legalism what often happens with legalism is people begin to major on the minors they become blind to the core to the heart essentials of who god has called us to be and they commit their lives even to the death for things that really don't matter they're willing even to destroy people over those things They're worried about the law. They're worried about the Sabbath. But John wants us to come back to the solid ground of God's will and word. The third and fourth time he says, make no mistake, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. It wasn't the will of the Pharisees that caused Jesus' bones to not be broken. It was that God had already said that was going to happen. And when the soldiers pierced his side and blood and water flowed, showing that his physical body was dead at least for the moment... They did not break his bones, and they looked upon him who they pierced. In 1 John, John's letter, same John who wrote this gospel that comes later, the very first verse of 1 John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And here at the end of John 19 He says, I was an eyewitness The man who saw these things with his own eyes is giving this testimony And his testimony is true I was there, I saw it, I heard the sounds, I smelled the smells And I know that I am telling you the truth And why does John say he testifies? Again, he brings it all the way back to the purpose for which he wrote. He testifies so that you also may believe. These things are written. This account of the crucifixion is told, not just so that you would know it or be able to recount it, but that you also might join the voices of the many we've seen throughout this gospel who said with their mouth, I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. We've seen it in Nicodemus. We've seen it in the woman at the well in Samaria. We've seen it in the man who was disabled, lying by the pool of Bethesda, whom Jesus healed, and he went home carrying the mat on which he laid for decades. We saw it in the man who was born blind, who said, I once was blind, but now I can see. He said, I believe. We saw it in Martha. And Mary of Bethany as their brother Lazarus lay in the grave they still said I believe and today John says as he said to his first audience to us I've written these things so that you too would say I believe so I ask you this morning with Jesus who is our savior but also our example have you trusted in him as such Can you join your voices with the many over the centuries who have said, yes, I believe in Jesus? Is Christ your Savior, but also your example? Would you be willing to say and able to say today, Christ is the center of my life and He is the example that I follow so that in my speech, my attitudes, and my action, I'm not only living with Him, but I'm living like Him. Christ